This begins the second part of my reflection on further aspects or additional elements of post-critical thinking and is the final episode on knowledge or epistemology, the final episode on how we know what we know. The last session was uh, eight and ended with observation seven. This reflection is session nine and begins with observation eight. So, eight, appreciating myth, symbol, and poetry. The second naivete, the second simplicity, post-critical seeing or thinking includes seeing myth, symbol, and poetry appreciatively. The reality is there is no way in which scripture or anything like the scriptures could be written without using highly figuratively, uh, figurative language. As soon as we begin to speak of God as coming, going, desiring, saving, rescuing, helping, and loving, we are speaking in imaginative and metaphorical or symbolical language rather than literal language. But what is a symbol? A symbolic story, event, ritual, ceremony, or word may be understood as one whose literal and direct meaning designates or stands for another secondary, indirect, or figurative meaning which can be understood only by correctly deciphering the original or apparent literal meaning. My grandmother Hart was uh, a happy, laughing, and cheerful woman. She was also the matriarch of a large nuclear and extended family. It was said that arguing with her was like arguing with a brick wall. The literal uh, solidity, unmovability, and fixedness of a physical brick wall, which cannot hear, represents, symbolizes, in this case, my grandmother's unresponsiveness to spurious arguments from her children or grandchildren, especially in matters of moral and ethical integrity. Now, I note that the original and or apparent literal meaning must be correctly understood in order to grasp the secondary or indirect symbolic meaning. Much of what I read in Scripture can be understood as symbolic or metaphorical, but that doesn't open an easy route for me because I still need to correctly understand the literal meaning in order to understand the metaphorical or the symbolical meaning. The famous theologian Paul Tillich furnished these characteristics of symbols. He said that a symbol is like uh, a sign in that it points beyond itself to something else. He said that symbols participate in the reality to which they point. And symbols open up realities which are otherwise closed to us. A piece of music, a painting, a poem may open up realities, depths within us that otherwise might be closed. Symbols seem to be embedded also, he noted, 
in the collective unconscious of the group in which they appear. And I think I would add to Tillich's character, characteristics, or maybe simply make more explicit, that not only does a symbol point to a reality beyond itself, and not only do symbols, true symbols, participate themselves in the reality to which they point, but they also open the possibility for the person who correctly understands the symbol to the possibility of participating or entering into that reality. What does not make sense to me and drives me crazy what I, find, what I find counterproductive is to conclude, as do both fundamentalists and certain types of progressive Protestants, that if something is symbolic or metaphorical, it is only true in the sense that the moral to a good story is true. True only in the sense that an instructive fable is true. To say that something, an event, for example, is described or explained in figurative or imaginative language does not mean that nothing at all actually happened or that its meaning is entirely emblematic or entirely psychological. Tillich <coughs> countered this tendency in saying, the language of faith is the language of symbols. Faith understood as a state of being ultimately concerned has no language other than symbols. When saying this, I always expect the question, only a symbol? One who asks this question shows that he or she has not understood the difference between signs and symbols, nor the power of symbolic language, which surpasses in quality and strength the power of any non-symbolic language. One should never say only a symbol, but one should say not less than a symbol. I have been personally greatly affected by what John Knox, who was professor of sacred, sacred literature at Union Seminary, wrote in his little book, Truth and Myth, Knox made a distinction between a true biblical myth and what is simply a biblical story, uh, a myth being uh, not a kind of fairy tale as commonly thought, but a, but a human story of, of divine action or the use of um, uh, imagery to express the otherworldly in terms of this world, a way of expressing the, the divine in terms of human life. Uh, nevertheless, while, while he made that dis distinction, what he said about myth, an earthly story, can, I think, be applied to biblical stories in general, not entirely, but in general. They are narratives consisting of what Knox called the existential expressive and the objective explanatory. Existentially expressive means that what is stated or narrated adequately expresses or conveys something deeply felt or meaningful about the human condition. And objectively explanatory means that it accounts for this meaningful something by an objective 
act of God, which can be told in no other way than symbolically, imaginatively, or metaphorically. Knox, therefore, wrote this. He wrote, perhaps as far as the Christian tradition is concerned, the distinction between the two elements, between the existential expressive and the, the objective explanatory, can most clearly be seen in the area of eschatology. We are bound to recognize the figurative, the highly imaginative character of the language in which the church has expressed its hopes for the ultimate future. The rich diversity of images which it has used, not to speak of their obvious incompatibility with one another, if taken with any literalness, make this character particularly clear. Moreover, it is manifest in that, in this area especially, the only alternative to such imaginative language is silence. Either we speak of our dead, as in Abraham's bosom, as being with Christ, as asleep in Christ, as awaiting the general resurrection and the Lord's return, or in some similar way, or else we refrain from speaking. But this last we cannot do, said Knox. Our hopes are real, and they clamor for expression. We must say that God will save us from death, that he will redeem our life from destruction, from the pit, that by his mercy our partial, broken selves will be made whole, that we shall see God. We actually expect this in our own future or in the already recognized present of our dead. In other words, there is an objective or factual element. To be sure, we cannot speak of what God will do for us in the last day without using language which belongs almost entirely to the imagination but this does not mean that we are doubting the actuality of God's doing it. Nine, post-critical thinking is not dismissive of all authority. Post-critical thinking is not, as previously noted, automatically dismissive of the knowledge or wisdom that comes through authority. We would not be able to function in the world at all if we did not utilize the knowledge that comes to us through authoritative sources. If people had paid more attention to the experts, there would have been far fewer deaths in the COVID-19 pandemic. How do I know climate change is real? I know it, first of all, from scientists. When climate change first became a topic of discussion in the media, I noted whether claims of global warming or a growing hole in the ozone was a consensus in the scientific community or merely a wild theory propounded by its fringe members. And I paid attention to whether the academic credentials and experience of any given scientist or reporter gave them expertise in the field. I could have gone further and verified much of their data myself, 
by looking at public records or uh, like Captain Jean-Luc Picard in one of the Star Trek episodes, I could have researched and kept records myself over several decades. But I trusted the media to report all that with reasonable accuracy, or if it did not, to be exposed. Furthermore, I know and or know of people working in the field, and I trust what I hear from them. I trust them. I have paid attention to what those advocating for or against corrective measures have to gain or to lose. And of course, there is my own direct experience. I, I was born and grew up in Bakersfield, California. I, I left there for the last time. I left there for good when I was, oh, I guess 24 years old. But I've made at least yearly visits ever since. My own experience tells me that Bakersfield's climate has changed over all those years. The summers are not as hot, although the humidity is greater. The winters are not as cold, and the fog is not as dense or continuous in the winter. I think most of my friends in San Diego, I tell of this, believe me. And when they do, do, they are believing something on authority. Certainly, my own personal experience supports in a small way what I have experienced on the authority of climate scientists. Again, the reality is that if we were not able to trust without being naive or gullible in the pre-critical sense of that word, we would not be able to function. We even learn to critique authority from authority figures. Part of growing spiritually and intellectually and emotionally is learning to evaluate the wisdom the integrity, and the knowledge of the authority sources that have been formed and continue to inform and shape us. Post-critical thinking or knowledge, this is number 10. Post-critical thinking or knowledge is a knowledge of living into. There are some things I just can't know in the same way I know, for example, that I had corn chowder soup for lunch four hours ago, or that our dog Jack is lying on the floor at my feet as I record this. Some things we know only by living into them. Uh, how, how did Mother uh, Teresa know? She was really called as a young woman to leave her home and family in Albania and become a nun only by living into it. How did she know as a nun and teacher in the convent in India that she was called to go out alone and work with the poorest of the poor? By living into it. Paul Ricoeur said, no one can understand a text, meaning, for example, no one can understand a biblical text who does not live in the aura of its meaning. No one can understand a text who does not live in the aura of its meaning. I think W.E. Sankster must have meant something like this when he said, the most sublime moments of the religious life are those in which we understand in our heart 
what we have known in our mind all along. The Church of England, as well as the Roman Catholic Church and uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, have long, um, these churches have, have long been guided by the Latin principle of lex arendi, lex credendi. Literally translated, the phrase means the law of liturgy or the law of worship is the law of belief. It is an axiom adapted from the writing of Prosper of Aquitaine, a 5th century uh, Christian thinker, philosopher, <clears throat> who recognized that uh, theological, propositional teaching of any sort, philosophical teaching, is, um, is first articulated and made clear and distinct in the celebration of prayer and liturgy. Worship engages belief in a way that simply thinking about God or studying the faith intellectually does not naturally do. In prayer, we become engaged in living a relationship of trust in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Doctrines, theological teachings are simply an attempt to spell out the meaning and implications of this knowledge, of this knowledge that comes from living into it as much as we possibly can. Finally, number 11. Post-critical thinking has enough awareness to recognize anything and absolutely everything can be debated by anyone possessing even modest human intelligence. I spent four years on my high school debate team and two years on my junior college debate squad, was the captain of my debate team, and with my partner, Bill Knapp, who was the superior debater, won third place in national uh, junior college competition. I'm grateful that it, for that experience and for the wonderful debate coaches I had, Mendel Overholt, Dr. Corey, and Dr. Phyllis Dabbs. It was an experience that has been a great help in my quest for knowledge. And one of the things I learned is that there is nothing that cannot be debated regardless, regardless of the actual truth of the matter. Over time, I learned as a practical and helpful principle not to take too seriously every spiritual or psychological conjurer that comes down the road, not to pay too much attention to celebrity theologians, debunkers, and theoretical academics with a career to build and a book to sell. Life is just too short and too precious to be drawn into their interminable speculations and arguments. It's a fruitless distraction from necessary spiritual work. Well, I have dwelt on all this at far 
greater length than I originally intended. And I and my thoughts have probably rambled around far more than I wanted, but it should represent reasonably well most of what I think about knowledge and its pursuit. I do intend to continue with God's help this self-talk project, turning next, I think, to the mystery we call God.